You know, I don't know if you've ever run into something and, and thought, man, what was the point of that? Or how did that happen? Or what were they thinking when it went like this? And I came across uh, some pictures of a lot of different sort of pointless stuff. Like, check out this gate. Look at this gate that someone decided <laughs> to build. That's really doing a masterful job, right? Uh, that's a pointless gate, right? Look at this, uh, look at this one. Um, that's really stopping the traffic from flowing through there, you know, I guess if you happen to walk. Here's a sign. Yeah, check out the pointless sign. Sidewalk ends in 20 feet. You think? I mean, I, I noticed that that's what it looks like right there. Uh, how about this one? How about this peephole? This is a really valuable peephole you've got. Got to make sure you look through that peephole, otherwise you have no idea what's coming into that door. Or uh, what, about, what about this fire extinguisher? Uh, pretty helpful, pretty helpful, right? There's just times where you see something like that is absolutely pointless. And the reason I bring that up is because the book of Nehemiah has been all about trying to build a wall around the city of Jerusalem. And uh, chapter five really forces us to ask this question. What good is a wall of distinction around the city of Jerusalem? That's what we've said the wall represents is the, the people of God being distinct and able to worship. What good is a wall of distinction if Israel keeps acting just like all the other nations? The whole point in the book of Nehemiah is that it, it's being rebuilt, the city's being rebuilt so that Israel can be a light to the nations. And chapter five really raises the question of, well, what good is it if we have this great wall if internally we're just like everybody else? If you're just joining us in this series, uh, let me tell you kind of where we've been. In chapter one, Nehemiah uh, realizes he's, he's off in Persia. He's a cupbearer to the king, which would be kind of like being a secret service agent. He's there to protect the king from being poisoned. And he gets word that his people who have started to go back into Israel uh, are under shame. They're under disrepute. And a lot of it has to do with that the walls of the city and the city itself are just crumbling. And so he prays and he asks God to open a door to be able to present something to the king. And sure enough, that happens in chapter two. And so uh, he gets uh, permission and actually even gets some funding to be able to go back. It's quite a long journey to go from Persia back to Jerusalem to start building the wall. That's in chapters two and chapter three. Uh, because he has this vision and because he's leading something and because anytime you're leading something, it's always leading a change, there's always opposition. That's what we looked at last week. And so Nehemiah four was a lot about this opposition that really started from the neighbors around Jerusalem, not the Jews. But it sort of got into the Jews' hearts as well. And we looked last week at how Nehemiah overcomes that. Well, in this passage, what we see is that the challenges in being a faithful people don't just come from outside. They also come from inside. Think about this. We as Christians like to think a lot about the corrupt nature of the culture and the society and Hollywood, and music, and Washington, D.C., and blah, 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 blah. But what about what's in us? That's what Nehemiah is talking about. If you have all the forms, and you have all the protections, but your heart is still not in a good place with God, it's just as pointless as that gate, as that fire extinguisher. So here's the big idea today, is that God is not trying to build a wall as much as he's trying to build a faithful people. 
That's what God wants. And that's why we're looking at this series is because as we uh, individually in our lives, as we as a church, as we in our society, as you in your work, as you're trying to kind of rebuild in this sort of uh, post-COVID era, which it seems like we've begun, uh, what does it look like for us to be a faithful people? That's what Nehemiah is all about. So what I want to do today is I want to just kind of walk through Nehemiah chapter 5 and then extract from it a handful of lessons that I think uh, are significant for us as we, as we try to be a faithful people. So here's what I want to do. And actually, uh, I want to give you a, a moment here. I want, to, I want to give you a moment to pray. And uh, I'll pray in just a moment, but I want to give you actually a little bit of time. I want you to ask the Lord to speak to you. How does he want to speak to you? to form you to be a faithful person. Would you pray? Would you ask him to speak to you in this time? And so, Father, I join in the prayers of your people. And I also ask God for you to speak to me. Lord, it's easy when uh, I'm the one standing here behind this table and on this stage with these lights on and this Bible open to imagine that I'm the faithful one trying to get everyone else to join me in that. And Lord, I'm aware that that's not the case. That I'm a beggar trying to tell other beggars where to find bread. And so God, speak to me and speak to us. Form us to be your faithful people. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, so I hope you have your Bible. Uh, Nehemiah chapter five, it begins in verse one. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. This word outcry is significant. This word outcry is a word that always uh, is used in the Bible to describe people who are experiencing oppression. It was especially used in the book of Exodus when the people of of Israel uh, had been forced into slavery by Egypt and they were experiencing oppression. Their babies were being forced to be killed. Uh, They were being forced to do all this difficult slave labor. And it says in Exodus that the outcry of the people reached the Lord. So this is significant now because it says a great outcry of the people and of their wives, not against Egypt, but against each other, their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, and, and here in this part, we get like these kind of three different uh, complaints. Uh, there's, there's in verse two, there's people who are saying, hey, there's this famine going on and we're really in trouble because we have to get grain, right? We're having a hard time finding enough to eat. Then in verse three, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So there's people worried about the famine. There's people who are now mortgaging their property in order to have enough food for the famine. And then there's another layer. Verse four, and there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. So they're like in a hole even deeper. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. So in other words, our kids are just like the people who are loaning us money's kids. Like we're all brothers. We're all Jewish people. 
We're all the same, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now, there's a lot going on here, and there's a lot that we just kind of, kind of keep track of. But here's basically the idea. A famine has hit. They're in the middle of this reconstruction project. Because they're in the reconstruction project, a lot of the men who normally would be working the fields and doing their things are also now kind of taking on this part-time job of wall building, and it's getting very difficult. Some people are in debt, and other people have uh, gotten in debt so far that they can't repay. The only way they can begin to repay is to begin to offer their children to these other Jewish families as slaves. This is not good. Verse 6, I was very angry, Nehemiah says, when I heard their outcry and these words. I think the beginning of verse 7 is so fascinating. I took counsel with myself. What if we did that the next time we got angry? I think this is really wise. He doesn't just go, I was so angry, so I freaked out. He says, I was really angry about this, so I took counsel with myself. I paused, I thought, I reflected. I prayed, we're sure that's what he must have done. I collected my thoughts and then I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest. And it's this phrase that is the big issue. This is the big problem. They're exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, guys, we were functionally slaves in Persia. A bunch of us have experienced freedom and now we're enslaving each other. This is a huge problem. And the basis of Nehemiah's anger here and his complaint is, comes from Leviticus 25. This is a book about God's holiness, the book of Leviticus. And it says this in Leviticus 25. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. Let's just pause there for a second. Go back. That, that last verse is going to be significant. But fear your God. Right? Why do you take no interest? Why do you not try to ramp it up against your brothers? Because you fear God. We'll talk about that more. Verse 37. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So, so here's, the, here's the issue. Here's what the problem is. Is the law of the people of God that, by the way, was supposed to govern the people of God. This is not saying that this is how it's supposed to be in the United States of America or in Great Britain or in China or in anywhere else. This was what it was to be for the people of God. They were not to loan each other money and charge interest. Why? Because they're brothers. If possible, it'd be best for them to just give their brother something. But if that's not a possibility, they're saying, hey, go ahead and lend it, but don't lend it at interest. Let your brother just pay you back. Why? Because you fear the Lord. And because the Lord is the one who brought you out of slavery, don't you dare get your brother in a place where he's enslaved like you were. And so that's what Nehemiah's beef is. Verse 9. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. 
Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? See what he's saying? He's saying, guys, we're not fearing the Lord. We're letting this thing get out of hand. He says that he's in some degree connected to this. He says, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. And and the commentators are split here. People aren't sure. Is Nehemiah saying, I'm part of the problem also and I need to change? Or is Nehemiah saying, hey, I'm loaning money. I'm just not charging interest. Either way, he says this at the end of verse 10, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive, all this stuff. Quit exacting this from them. And the people say, yes, okay, we're going to do it. Boy, don't you wish every time you confronted somebody on something, it was that easy? Okay, we will. But that's what goes on. They said, amen. They praised the Lord. The people did what they said. So it didn't get rid of the famine. It didn't get rid of the rebuilding project, but it got rid of this this harsh situation that the people were putting themselves into each other. Then the end of chapter five is Nehemiah actually kind of zooming out and saying, hey, in the whole time that I was back in Jerusalem, in the whole time that I was serving as a kind of governor there, I also had this allowance that came from the government from Persia. They gave me this whole thing and I chose not to take it. I chose not to live on it. I had this opportunity to do something. It was okay for me to do it. It was all right for me to do it. But if I was going to do that, then it was actually going to put more of a burden on the people who were going to have to support the government. And so I just paid it out of my own pocket. So that's what's going on. It's this, it's this chapter about what do you do when the people of God are not acting in accordance with God's word. It's got to change. So that's Nehemiah chapter five. Let's pull out five lessons, five so what's from this. Here's the first one. One of the biggest threats to God's people is God's people. Okay, Brandon, I'll say that again. (laughs) One of the biggest threats to God's people is God's people. Listen, we've said this before. The, The world's against Christianity Wham! We're going to cry about it? What did we expect? Jesus said, if they don't like me, they won't like you. Okay, so the world's going to come against us, sometimes with fury. But here's the thing, whether we rise or fall doesn't depend on them. It depends on whether we will fear the Lord and follow him. The question is, are we built on the rock or on the sand. This was how Jesus ended his famous Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter seven, he describes, he says, listen, if you hear my words and if you do what I say, you're like a person who built his house on a rock. And the winds came and the storm came and you endured because you were built on a rock. If you hear these words of mine, Jesus says, and don't do them, you're like a person that builds his house on the sand. And the wind came and the storms came and the house fell and great was the fall of it. Listen, you notice how Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say this, if you build your house in the rock, the storm won't come. That's not what he says. He says, the storm's coming, the wind's coming, the thunder's coming, it's coming. What are you built on? What are we built on? Family, what are we built on? We must be built on the rock of God's word. What is the rock? Well, Jesus says the rock is hearing God's word and doing it. 
One of the biggest threats to the people of God is the people of God not doing the words of Jesus. And so rather than just sort of constantly looking around in judgment and condemnation at a world that is losing its mind, make no question about it, what if we held up the mirror of God's word and said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Lord, search me and know me. Is there any unwise, unjust, unkind, unloving way in me? One of the biggest threats to the people of God is the people of God. This thing's about to fall apart. And it comes from within, not from outside. Here's a second lesson from this text, is that God evaluates faithfulness with a more comprehensive standard than we do. God evaluates faithfulness with a more comprehensive standard than we do. When I think, maybe you're like this, when I think about, am I being faithful to God? I almost always just think of kind of my private life with God. Am I praying? Am I reading the scripture? Am I confessing sin? Am I avoiding impure thoughts? What am I doing with God? Is that how you think of it? Now, make no mistake, that's no small part. But God evaluates faithfulness with a more comprehensive standard than we do. Notice, they haven't even finished rebuilding the wall, and they haven't finished rebuilding the temple, and God's not worried about that. What God's worried about is the way they are treating one another. Right, the, the, the problem here is not that they aren't praying enough. It's not that they're not worshiping enough. It's not that they're not hearing from God's word enough. The problem has to do with how they're using their money. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't it be nice if you could just do whatever you wanted and then come to church and it'd be all right? By the way, that's what some of you do. And God's not okay with it. God's looking at how are you using your money? How are you handling this? How are you approaching your business? He's looking at all of our life. He's not just looking at our Sunday life. He's not just looking at our quiet time life. He's looking at everything. And that leads us to a third lesson is that just because something is legal or normal doesn't mean it's right. Just because something is legal or normal doesn't mean it's right. This exacting of interest problem that keeps getting brought up, right? It's brought up in verse six. You're exacting interest from his brother. Verse 10, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Let, let's stop this. This interest thing was normal. It was legal. It was typical. Everybody's doing it. But that doesn't mean it's good. Nehemiah at the back half of the chapter is saying, hey, here's what's normal. What's normal for a governor of a region, which is what I was, is to get this allowance and to use it. He's going, he actually says at the end of chapter five, he says there were at his table 150 men that he had to take care of. And what was prepared in terms of food each day, verse 18, was prepared at my expense. So I didn't use this. I could, it was normal to do that, but I didn't do it. Just because something's legal or normal doesn't mean 
it's right. One of the things that's been so encouraging to me and some of our other pastors in recent days, especially as, uh, I don't know if anyone's noticed, the housing thing is kind of going bananas, right? Like some of you just moved here and uh, you're like, whoa, is it always like this? No, <laughs> it's not always like this. And it's crazy, right? And it's a, great, it's a great time if you're selling. It's a great time if you're a landlord. It's a brutal time if you're trying to find a place to rent or find a place to buy. It's really, really difficult. And one of the things that has so encouraged me and encouraged some of our, our leaders is we know a number of people, a number of you in our church, who are in a situation where you own investment properties that you rent out to people. And what some of you are doing is you are intentionally not getting the top dollar that you could get. Because you're looking at it going, yeah, I just, I don't want to stick it to people. There's another guy in our church who, one of the things he does is he goes into these investment properties and he buys them real cheap and he flips them. But as he flips them, what he does is he doesn't cut a lot of corners that are typical in the industry, right? Because typically you think, well, this is just an investment property and a bunch of renters are going to be in here. Let's just make it as cheap as we can. He says, you know what? I'm actually going to spend a little bit more money to make it a little sturdier and a little bit nicer and a little bit more able to kind of withstand the turnover of multiple families in here over time. And I'm going to cut down my profit margin. But I think that that actually honors God. Isn't that cool? Now, I realize a lot of you are like, must be nice to have investment properties, right? That's <laughs> like, that's, yes, Lord, that's what I would do too. Like, <laughs> how many of you have ever promised that if, if I win the lottery, God, here's what I'll do with it, right? Don't play the lottery, by the way, please. But, but just because something's legal or normal doesn't mean it's right. What's legal or normal in your industry? But it's not right. What are the things that all the other salespeople do? It isn't right. It's normal. It's standard practice. What are the things that all the other engineers do? Standard practice. What are the things that all the other firefighters do, all the other police do, all the other medical people do? What are the things all the other moms do? What are the things all the other retired people do? And they're normal, and they're legal, but they're not good. What's normal among your friends? You go, you know, we're all kind of doing this. Is this okay? If you're asking that question, it usually means there's something in your spirit going, eh, it's probably not. And so this isn't trying to suck the fun out of things. It's just trying to say like, listen, God cares about this. God, God cares what we do. He evaluates and cares about all of life. And so let's be holy. Let's be faithful, not just in our private devotions, but in our whole public life. Fifth, fifth or fourth lesson, fourth of five lessons. And this one is shifting gears a little bit. Number four, uh, concern for the poor is a mark of God's faithful people. Th that's a lot of what's going on here, right? This is even the ESV uh, headline, which isn't part of the original scripture. It's just their summary of it, is the headline of chapter five is Nehemiah stops oppression of the poor. So what you're finding here is, is that this is especially, this situation of exacting interest is especially hurting the most vulnerable, the most poor, the most not well off. 
And, and here's what I think. I think as I read this story, it's not like you have, and this is, this is important even in our day. I don't think you have like, well, there's the oppressors and there's the oppressed. And there are these like permanent fixed categories. What you have is sinners across the board. That's what you have. And I don't know that people are waking up every day going, ooh, how can I stick it to the poor? But what they're doing is they're going, how can I do what's best for me? I listened to a podcast interview recently and I actually shared it with Matthew because he's got an MBA and afterwards we both were like, I don't think I want to listen to that anymore. Uh, because it was a conversation with this woman who was saying, you know, our, our economy actually depends on poor people staying poor in order to have the kinds of goods and services at the cheap price that we all like it. Right? And, and even, I'm like, stop talking, stop talking, stop talking. That makes me uncomfortable. I don't know what to do with that. But here's the thing. Concern for the poor has always been a mark of God's people. It's always part, it's part of the biblical story, right? The, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, we just read Leviticus, right? There's a huge concern for the poor. One of the things that farmers were to do was not to, to, to harvest all the way out to the edges of their field, but to actually leave some along the edges so that the poor could come and have food. It's a big part of that. The prophets are incredibly concerned. One of the big indictments of the people of Israel that shows that they've wandered from God is that they don't have concern for the poor, Jesus comes along and Jesus doesn't have a house to live in and is born to a teenage mom in a barn. And it's not like all of a sudden he gets wealthy, right? Someone comes along and says, I want to follow you. And he goes, well, just so you know, we don't have anywhere to stay. And they're like, never mind. But what is Jesus' message? Jesus is preaching so many times, good news to the poor. So, so he, he's literally preaching, I have come to bring a kingdom that is going to make it where the poor are lifted up. And not just the financially poor, but here's what Jesus does. He also then dies for the spiritually poor. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he comes to do what we could never do. See, because no amount of wealth and no amount of poverty makes you inherently any closer to Jesus. If you're in the top 1% or the bottom 1%, you need to repent of your sins and trust Christ. But the good news is that Jesus is available for all of us. He came to give us life. He came to do what we could not do. And so he has a heart for the poor. When you read the book of, of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, these apostles are clearly very concerned about the poor. Even when the Apostle Paul later uh, comes to faith and he goes in and he reports to the original apostles in Jerusalem and he tells them about what he's experienced, they say, hey, that's great. You keep preaching, but don't forget the poor. Paul says, and that's something I was eager to do was to take care of the poor. The early church was known for their love and their concern for the poor, right? The early church, especially in the Roman Empire, they were poor, they were marginalized, they were oppressed, they were persecuted. And yet they cared for one another sacrificially. They were known for this, right? One of the practices in the Roman world is that people would abandon their babies. And who was it that would come and take care of these babies? The Christians. Why? Because they had so much money that they could afford another mouth to feed? No, but because they feared the Lord. 
And so they care for the sick, right? Plagues and uh, epidemics and pandemics broke out across the ancient world. Who were the people that rushed to care for people at their own risk? Christians, right? The reason we have Christian universities and the reason we have hospitals, this all came out of Christianity. See, here's what's so interesting to me is that the Western world, which was largely shaped by the values of Christianity, has concern for the poor. Right, the kind of classic liberal progressive person who wants nothing to do with Jesus at all still is very concerned, at least in their own mind, about the poor. Why? Because of Christianity. No cultures in history cared about the poor before that. If you were the poor, it's because you were born that way. And it's because, well, too bad for you. And it's because maybe in your past life you did something bad. And it's because, I mean, no one cared until Christianity. Concern for the poor is a mark of God's faithful people. And so that makes me ask, what about us? Do we care for the poor? I'm encouraged by the things I see. I'm encouraged by our M25 collections. I'm encouraged by the things that, that I, the stories I hear. But I, I also wonder, as I look at myself, would someone look at my life and family and go, they seem concerned about the poor. Here's a question I've wondered. Uh, a lot of us are rooting for abortion to be struck down. Amen? Anybody else think like for abortion to go away would be an amazing thing for our country? Right? And so, so here's the thing. That would be wonderful to happen. I'm, I'm rooting for it. I'm pulling for it. But you know what would happen, right? If the Supreme Court struck Roe versus Wade down uh, somehow, what would happen is it would then go to the state, right? And the blue states would all keep it and the red states would get rid of it. Here's the interesting thing. What are the red states also not concerned about? Services for the poor. Which means if abortion got struck down, who would have to step up? The church. Are we all ready to take in the babies? Are we all ready to have that spare room in our house become a room where a single mom who's keeping her kid lives? Are we ready to start giving significant portions of our income to support that? I don't know if we are, but we need to be. Concern for the poor is a mark of God's faithful people. And we, as we know from the whole biblical story, are blessed to be a blessing. So this means God actually expects more from us who have more. There's a disproportionate blessing, there's a disproportionate influence, there's a disproportionate expectation. This is convicting. I'm, I realize I'm raising questions that I'm not solving. Some of you are going, so what are we going to do about it? I don't know. I didn't get that far. I just was <laughs> looking in the book and go, here's what it says. I, I don't know the plan yet. But, but, but at this point, I just want to go like, where are our hearts? Are we ready? If the thing some of us most pray for happened, are we ready to step up to that level? Number five, how much you care about others depends on how much you fear the Lord. That's the issue here. 
Verse 9. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? That's what's going on. Uh, Nehemiah himself, why does he live below what the norm is for other governors? Verse 15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. How you care about others, how you love others, how you treat others ultimately comes down to do you fear God? The ancient church had this saying for it. It was Coram Deo, that we live all of life before the face of God. That's what Coram Deo means, face of God. Do you realize that? Are we aware of that? We live Coram Deo. We live before the face of God. And so we love one another, not because it scores us points with them, not because other people will think, man, they're a really nice person. Why do we love? Because we fear God. We have a preaching collective where we get together with all the other pastors and preachers uh, from across Redemption. Uh, One of the pastors that we've recently hired, who I'm so excited about, his name is Sandy Mason. Uh, He's 68 years old, uh, pastored for 40 years, and uh, is basically around to just be an encouragement and a pastor to our pastors. And here's something he said as we talked about this idea of the fear of the Lord. Here's what he said. He said, the fear of the Lord is really the key to integrity. If I only do what is right, for fear of being caught, I'm the same as the unbeliever. The truth is, we will all be caught eventually. Let's be caught doing the right thing, especially when it is only seen by him. Let's be caught doing the right thing. And if you're caught doing the right thing, it's not because you're trying to impress somebody, it's because you're trying to live for an audience of one It's because you enjoy and adore and worship and fear God. That's what fear of the Lord is. It just means you're aware aware of him. I think Seth is usually the illustration, right? That, uh, right, you're, you're, if, if you are in a house that has scorpions, you live with a fear of scorpions, right? Which is mostly an awareness, they're here. That's what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is going, he's here. He sees this. He's lived, he's with me. He knows me, he loves me, and I'm gonna care for others as a result. Now, if you hear all this and you go, you know what, I'm not really fearing the Lord and I'm kind of living for myself and I'm fudging on all these different things uh, that, you know, they're normal and they're okay in my industry, but they're not right before God. What do you do about it? Well, verse 11 gives us the answer. Return to them this very day. Their fields, their vineyards, their olives, orchards, their houses, their percentage of money, grain, wine, etc. I love this about Nehemiah. He doesn't go, you know what? Get around to it eventually. He says, repent today. If you have a hard heart, today repent. If you're not fearing the Lord, today repent. If you're backbiting against your fellow believers, today repent. If you're fudging on all these practices that everyone else thinks is normal, today. Today. This is the day. Repent this very day. We have a Savior who was entitled to all the privileges of heaven, and he came to us to save us from a selfish heart that has to live for us so that we can love him and we can love other people. That frees us. We're, we're not slaves anymore. We're free. So let's live with the freedom to love that Christ gave us. Let's pray. God, thank you.
for your word. God, it, it uh, confronts us and convicts us. Lord, this is not a text I think I would ever have picked to preach were we not going through this book. And so thank you for the gift of your word, how it challenges us, how it allows us to see things about ourselves that we don't really want to see. And God, thank you that you do that, not to, uh, not to shame us, but to actually help us to walk in the light. Lord, you say that wounds from a friend can be trusted, and we believe you're our friend. So God, help us to see areas where we need to repent, where we need to fear you. And God, thank you that you're always with us. Amen.